Chapter six part one of the Pathway of the Pioneer. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Pathway of the Pioneer by Dolph Willard. Chapter six part one. Pleasure with dry lips and pain that walks by night, all the sting and all the stain of long delight. These were the things she knew not of that knew not of her, when she played at half a love and half a lover stage love a c swinburne rehearsal had been called for eleven o'clock in the theatre royal brixham heath and to reach the outer ward of the suburbs alma had to start at half-past nine and after a short experience of the underground railway to change to an omnibus then to a tram-car and then to walk for ten minutes to save another penny which she added mentally to her lunch she arrived at the theatre rather before most of the company but that she did not mind as she had met none of them before and was curious to see what they were like the piece was a new venture a comic opera to be run in the provinces before it came to london where it had only been put on at a matinee and the forty-odd souls who comprised the company would be her intimate and only associates for the space of nine months if the tour remained as at present announced a doorkeeper led alma into the theatre and after a stare into her face told her to go down a dark passage and turn to her right here i'll show you he said to do which he put his arm familiarly round her waist under the excusing darkness and leisurely proceeded in the direction he had given alma had been blinded by the light morning outside in the darkness beyond the stage door or she would not have hesitated as it was she made a little rush forward to extricate herself and nearly tumbled up the steps on to the stage with a mental note to avoid the doorkeeper during the time that the company occupied the theatre royal by the time she left the town alma had generally a black mark of avoidance against the names of half the staff and hovered between the anxiety of giving offence to officials who could resent it on her in a hundred petty ways and the desire to keep clear of the license allowed even to subordinates on the stage she found two other girls and a man the latter humming over the music from the disreputable script in his hand the girls sitting close together on two chairs near the footlights and talking in low whispers to each other one gas-lamp made the gaunt stage and back-cloths a place of uncertain objects and wavering shadows while the gulf of the house beyond was a yawning pit-mouth it was indescribably forlorn and did he give you any presents dear said one raised girl-voice the common accent matching the pretty ill-bred face chorus commented alma with a shudder the most revolting detail of her profession to her was the tradition amongst the ranks of the company that a girl should get all she could out of any man who paid her attention from the front of the house the actors themselves were too certainly impecunious to be of any use alma in her impulsive generosity described the ladies of the chorus as quite nice girls in themselves and chafed because she could not alter their proclivities to accept gifts from the merest stranger nothing but sweets well i do call that mean he ought at least to have given you a bracelet the young man with the script broke into a lilt of pure music 
revealing a tenor voice of power and sweetness enough to make the angels weep in spite of an unshaven face and a soiled collar molly was a milkmaid hi ho hi ho molly was a milkmaid hi ho the two chorus girls looked up and giggled the tenor nothing embarrassed informed the empty house that pretty little pink toes always go in silk hose and alma sat down and waited by and by more of the chorus appeared then the stage manager who swore because every one was not up to time then the conductor who was going to run the company through the music but the principals were late with a due sense of their own importance in keeping every one waiting until tired and fagged who are we that we should have any lunch to-day said a girl sitting next to alma with the irony of experience do you know mr cox no i was never with this crowd before said alma briefly he is our first comedian and very clever he always keeps us waiting half an hour at least it is twenty to twelve now oh we are going to begin at last as if we could not have sung the choruses at least got your score mr manners has just handed me a few rags said alma with dry distaste looking at the filthy music lying on her knee which she forbore to touch it's all bits and pieces and things said the other girl carelessly so is the crowd do you sing chorus in the first act i am playing mrs hottentot in the second i signed for chorus and a small part oh i am understudying lead and singing chorus too i hope we shall dress together some of the girls are awfully common what is your name alma craig said alma suddenly conscious of the meaning of the words for her father had been a colonel of foot and had named her after the first battle in which he as an ensign had taken part alma craig the daughter of a forgotten worthy with nothing but his pluck and fighting powers for her inheritance she was likely to prove them that morning for the rehearsal was a bad specimen of its class the principals were not all present until twelve and the chorus was kept waiting about to practice those portions of the music where they sang two lines in the midst of a recitative by the hero or heroine the morning dragged itself out in the dusty stuffy place which was yet full of draughts and the girls who had worked really hard at their task were jaded and hungry by two o'clock before which there had been no cessation of business well i'm going out to get some lunch mr manners said the leading lady slapping her music together and rising determinedly from her chair it seems as if we should still be here at six to-night and i can't sing on nothing but miss lacroix we must rub it into something like shape as soon as possible protested the conductor angry and tired and resenting the lady's selfishness because of his own conscientiousness in sticking to his duty the chorus listened in hungry silence longing with what felt like empty bodices for a release in which to fill them up with indigestible buns or anything that would relieve the faint feeling in their ill-nourished frames alma who had had an early breakfast was beginning to see the ghost-like empty seats in the house through a dizzy haze and under her big eyes were two dark lines like bruises those of the chorus who knew mr manners had brought their refreshments with them very well said the conductor savagely 
as the leading lady dragged her soiled silk skirts across the dirty stage. Then we must simply take the chorus alone until you come back. Ladies, Act Three, Opening Chorus. The daughter of Colonel Craig turned the page with a shaking hand, squared her shoulders, and forced her voice to the renewed effort. She would go down with her back to the wall, if only she did not feel so sick. It was three o'clock before the girls were grudgingly released, and starved and faint trooped out to the nearest confectioners in that dubious neighborhood. Alma's little worn purse held exactly tenpence halfpenny, sixpence of which it cost her to get back to her room in Noman Street, Victoria. She looked with anxious eyes round the uninviting shop which she had entered, and wondered what would go farthest. But she was so giddy with tire that she hardly cared. A halfpenny bun, a glass of milk, and a tuppenny ham sandwich. That was her selection for four hours of hard work, and another hour and a half's journey. She was not at best a strong girl, though the crake pluck and endurance took her through where sounder constitutions wavered. Furthermore, she had had a bad experience of late, on which to rest a strain, for she had only been home from a tour in South America and Canada for a month, when she got what is technically called a shop, and began this rehearsing for comic opera. Alma counted herself as lucky, for the foreign tour had not left her with as much money in hand as she had hoped, and she was for the moment anxious. She could no more save than her father before her, and every spendthrift tale of less scrupulous members of a company worked upon her pity and charity, as a sick cat did on Flair Caldecott's. Alma had never been on tour yet that someone in the crowd did not sponge upon her, from making demands upon the small salaries which would hardly feed herself, to borrowing her clothes, that most necessary item of an actress's stock in trade, which they frequently ill-treated, or did not return. A girl like Alma is bound to be imposed upon by the motley classes which rub shoulders in the theatrical profession. But it is possible that the wide, sweet-hearted nature gained more than it lost, even by the privations its generosity incurred. There were some who were shamed into loving Alma Craig, and who, converted to partisans, fought other mere sharks fiercely on her behalf with a coarser strength than was possible to Alma for herself. The girl who had sat next to her at rehearsal was a case in point. She followed Alma to the same confectioner's and sat at the same table, complaining that she could not afford a proper lunch. Alma would have shared the bun and the sandwiches with her, having already started each chorus for her with a truer ear, and lent her half her cloak as a shield to one of the theatre drafts. The girl, who is only worth calling Molly, looked at Alma's feverish white face and had the grace to decline a share. We are about as badly off one as another, she said. What was your last show? Canada, said Alma wearily, putting her thin hand over her great bright eyes. We had an awful time. How was that? We did one-night towns with long distances in between. It meant that you got no sleep. We were not in bed till one, and then we had to get up at five to catch the train. Travelled most of the day, and you can't rest. 
got into another town at noon and then rehearsed the girls used to fall asleep on their dress baskets at the stations we never could play decently we hadn't the heart we were so tired of course we had to pack up every night too both at the theatre and the hotel there was no rest anywhere no wonder you looked played out said the other girl in suddenly shocked tones this is a bad crowd for you after that sort of thing manners spares no one and you ought to have had three months rest at least yes but i can't i should starve said alma briefly pushing the empty milk glass aside she still felt dead tired but not so faint i think i will get home and go to bed she said vaguely i feel as if what i wanted was to sleep and sleep and sleep flare caldicott's ideal molly looked her sharply in the face and rose also i'll come with you part of the way she said and to her credit she did so putting alma almost tenderly into her last train and telling her to take it easy to-morrow the chorus never troubled to be punctual knowing the proclivities of the principals but there was no working to-morrow for alma she let herself into her rooms feeling oddly light-headed and trying to decide what she could do if she were ill that nightmare that haunts news ultra she was living alone just now in a bed sitting-room which cost her twelve shillings a week everything but food included it was impossible to communicate with her friends and the only thing distinct to her mind was that she must go to rehearsal to-morrow somehow for one thing she could not afford to pay a fine for another the thought of perhaps losing her engagement filled her with unprecedented terror in her present overwrought state she had five pounds in the post-office that was all five pounds between her and the streets she pulled the pins out of her thick hair in a kind of frenzy hoping to still the pain in her head once the weight of it were free and shaking it about her shoulders she took off her clothes with trembling fingers and crept in between the cool kind sheets it was by that time five o'clock in the afternoon the landlady did not take up alma's tea her lodger having an oil-stove and preferring to make it herself but she usually carried a tray with a cold supper to her room between seven and eight and she leisurely proceeded to do so this evening not being at all disturbed at hearing nothing of miss craik all day for she knew that the little actress was rehearsing she almost started back with astonishment on entering the room to see alma's tossed dark head resting on the pillow and her unconscious face with its closed eyes poor thing she's tired out and won't need no food to-night she said peering a little curiously at the exhausted white face but i'll leave the supper she put the tray on the table and went away alma moaning a little in her sleep even as she did so nor did any one come into the room again until ten the next morning for alma did not rise early unless she gave her landlady notice that she had to rehearse and should want breakfast before her usual hour alma was still lying in bed when the woman entered the room in much the same attitude as the night before but she was muttering scraps of comic operas and plays though the landlady did not know it and as if the opening of the door caught her attention she half sat up in bed fixing her feverish eyes on the intruder i must go to rehearsal i shall lose my engagement 
and the advance agent has never gone on with the plots she said pitifully you know he hasn't and that is why there are no props what am i to do for a broken mirror in the last act she broke into a line of shrill sweet music that had haunted her brain since yesterday though she had not known it pretty little pink toes always go in silk hose my sakes miss you're sick said the landlady in dismay staring at the delirious eyes following her about the room and i'm sure i don't know what to do she hasn't a friend in the world as i knows of she muttered turning to the door and as to rehearsal it would mean death to her she went out of the room locking the door firmly behind her as if alma's recovery depended solely upon being kept in one room then she sent round a note to the nearest doctor by one of the children who stopped to play in the gutter and then she set to her household tasks secure in the fact that the patient could not get out and that she had done her best for her in her own opinion at four o'clock that afternoon it chanced that winnie dare on her way home to west kensington and a dreary boarding-house turned out of her direct road to seek comfort of a friend she had got off work early and hated the idea of the sordid room at the boarding-house wherein every one ate stale bread and butter or cheap cake and one or two young men home from the city ventured to chaff her as the only pretty girl in the house winnie called them brown jones and robinson and made merry over them to nuzotra but in her soul she contrasted them with the man whom she called somebody when speaking of him to flare i will go and borrow a cup of tea from alma said winnie and turned into noman street the house was only a few yards down and at the door she was met by the landlady with a face which looked even longer than a protruding upper lip had made it miss craik miss yes she's in and i'm very glad you've come to her poor thing she said severely as if winnie's appearance were only a poor apology for neglect why what is the matter the girl asked startled she's very sick miss i've sent for the doctor but he ain't come i suppose poor folks can't be attended to at once like the rich though it's never so pressing said the woman with a sanctimonious sniff for tommy had not told of his loitering on the way or the fascination of gutters and the note should have been delivered hours ago miss craik ill what is it winnie asked sharply i'm sure i don't know miss but i ope it's nothing catching and if it is she must go to the ospital sorry as i shall be to turn er out and me with a ouseful of small children and lodgers and wanting to get up and go to rehearsal which would have been er death and of course i stopped that miss and locked her in she ended with indignant virtue oh poor alma said winnie under her breath she almost pushed the large slovenly woman out of the way and ran upstairs unlocking the door and entering the cheerless hopeless sick-room alma had got back into bed and was lying shivering under the bedclothes and muttering piteously of past experiences long weary waits and miserable journeys hardships on the road and shameful dangers behind the scenes that turned winnie sick in one of the burning phases of the fever she had evidently risen and flung open the window and had then probably wandered about the room and taken a fresh chill 
At any rate it was evident that she was very, very ill, and she had been there, locked into the room, without nursing or attendance, for twenty-four mortal hours. The untidy, comfortless surroundings seemed to mock her pain and helplessness. It was illness without the grace of care or tenderness, illness in all its most sordid ugliness, the hard outcome of having been flung on a loveless world. Winnie's hazel eyes blazed with furious resentment against the destiny which seemed to have been thrust upon Nuzotra, and then burned with scalding tears. Poor Alma! Poor little Alma! she said brokenly, straightening the clothes and touching the hot forehead. That Alma had fever of some kind was certain, but she was quite fearless. She laid all the clothes and wraps that she could find on the bed to force the burning heat to a perspiration if she could by such simple means soothing alma with her voice and touch meanwhile then she straightened the room almost throwing last night's supper tray out of it in her indignation at the landlady's indifference and sponged the patient's lips when she could do no more for alma for the minute she glanced anxiously at her watch i must go round to flare she is the only one of us who can come she said half aloud i must be in business to-morrow and i dare not sleep here if it is something catching nor must magda or beatrice and hilda lives too far off flare is the nearest and she has no office work she glanced reluctantly at alma but there was nothing for it but to leave her so turning the key in the lock again she went downstairs and gave her brief orders to the landlady i am going to send somebody to stay the night with miss craig until we can make other arrangements she said and if the doctor comes in the meantime please let him see her and tell us all that he says i have locked the door again but i shan't be gone long winnie's stormy eyes and upright slender figure impressed the landlady the girl swayed like a young beech-tree moved by the wind in her anger and towered above the fat woman as she swept out of the house winnie's impulses were generous either for good or for bad and in the cause of friendship she spared neither her money or herself it was unheard of extravagance to take a hansom unless it were one's birthday or some surprising luck had befallen but winnie did not hesitate she hailed the first cab she saw thankful that her week's salary held out to pay for it so near saturday and drove straight to charing cross flare was sitting in the deck-chair as winnie came in in her own room for its comfortable easy length made it her most cherished possession and she carried it down or upstairs for the society's meetings and her own use winnie was breathless from climbing up many flights of stairs but she had hardly got out her message before flare was on her feet and looking round to collect what goods and chattels she must take with her i suppose it is too late to get things in to-night she said i will take my own bovril ten chances to one the cupboard will be empty can you go then flare go of course i can go some one must that is evident has alma a spirit stove do you remember she has a beatrice that won't do there may be no oil pack that methylated spirit and the small stove winnie while i go and look out some clothes there's the key of the cupboard put up what you think i shall need 
Remember, I must eat if I am to nurse, she added, walking off into the next room. In five minutes she was back with a handbag ready, and Winnie had made a bundle of the portable food she found. There was no brandy, but Winnie offered to go round home by way of Nomen Street and order in anything that could be got, while Flair went straight to Alma. A wine merchant is more likely to send than a grocer, she said. Get me some ice if you can, Winnie. I wonder. A sudden shade of anxiety made her face pathetic. Winnie caught it and thought it was for Alma. What is it, dear? she said tenderly. Nothing, said Flair, swallowing breathlessly. She could not explain that she was suffering a pang, not on Alma's but on R.L.'s account. Every time she left her rooms for a holiday, it was becoming more of an effort to Flair to leave him behind for a cat of r l stevenson's dimensions is not property easily disposed of or conveyed to other lodgings and so she had the gnawing anxiety of having to leave him to mrs bonnet's own tender mercies and to know that instead of her regular feeding he might often go hungry it seemed a dreadful thing to flare that he must think himself suddenly deserted and that she could not explain to him that her heart was torn between him and Alma's greater necessity. Alma can't help herself just now, thought Flair desperately, and R.L. can go out and steal, poor dear. I hope he will, only someone might hurt him. There were tears not far off her eyes, as in her too vivid imagination she saw the cat butting vainly at her doors, in his usual manner, and unable to get in. If she had been able to fasten them open safely, Flair would have risked all her belongings and left the rooms at least at his disposal. But the fear of some mishap taking place, of R.L. getting locked in and starved, Mrs. Bonnet would never trouble over his non-appearance, was so frightful that she carefully locked them both before leaving the house with Winnie. She saw Mrs. Bonnet on her way out and explained the situation to her asking her in a rather shaky little voice to remember to feed R.L., who happened for once to be asleep in the kitchen. Oh, he'll be all right, miss, said Mrs. Bonnet consolingly. He's fat enough to do without a few dinners. Flair stooped down and kissed the flat, soft head in silence. She was suffering quite out of all proportion in this sacrifice of one thing that she loved to another, partly on account of the vivid imagination, which, had she lived, would probably have brought her notoriety, if not fame. Flair was never quite normal in her experiences. Her agony of tenderness over the brute creation, her exquisite enjoyment of certain brief pleasures which left her unable to express it, her equally intense pain over failure, moral or mental, all may have been the heritage of the artist, but they were very uncomfortable emotions to Flair. Fortunately, her hands were too full once she arrived at Noman Street to allow her much time to think of R.L. going supperless to no particular bed. The doctor came almost as soon as she had settled herself and her belongings, and being a young man in a hurry, hardly waited to be shown up, but took the stairs two at a time and knocked at Alma's door while the landlady still panted in the rear. This the room? Fever, you think? Then you had better stay outside, he said curtly. I'll see to it. I only had your note a few. Ah! The door had been opened to him by a small woman with a tired face 
and the most horrible eyes he had ever seen. As a psychological study, he never forgot Flair Caldecott, but he did not care to remember her. She stood out in his mind as a face with brows too broad for its lower half, and babyish rings of flossy hair pushed away from the startling forehead, beneath which those eyes were even more startling to his analytical mind. Where is my patient, he said, putting Flair gently on one side, and going straight to the bed. Flair followed him, by no means repelled by his rather abrupt manner or careless dress, for if she had undue sympathy with animals, she seemed also to share their instinct. The doctor laid a large kind hand on Alma's forehead, and made his examination briefly. Then he turned to Flair. Are you nursing her? he said. Yes. The fear in her made Flair gulp. Ah, you will need all your wits about you, you mass of nerves, he added inwardly. If you think it necessary, will you please send me a trained nurse, said Flair steadily. I am going to send someone to help you to-morrow, said the doctor decidedly. This is a bad case. I ought to have been here before. Flair did not answer. All that she thought was in her eyes just then, and the doctor read them reluctantly. I will come early to-morrow, he said, and gave Flair his instructions carefully. She was not a bad nurse while her strength should last, but worry always played havoc with Flair's digestion, and after a few days she knew she might break down for lack of nourishment. At present, however, she went about her tasks deftly and almost mechanically, knowing that she could trust herself to wake at any hour she wished to give Alma medicine and confident that she could do all that must be done, for the night at least. It was a rather warm evening in May, and the window was thrown wide open. Flair never lost the impression of one moment of Alma's illness after she entered the house, but at the time she was outwardly unaffected, as if numb. She made a light supper, and gave Alma her medicine again and then she arranged the mattress and bedclothes for herself, which she had laid on the floor, as the landlady either could not or would not make her any other bed. It was only eight o'clock even then, and the lengthened day seemed as if it would never grow dark. Flair sat by the bedside, with her hands clasped round her knees, and watched Alma for half an hour, during which the restless talking and repeating portions of plays never ceased. Flair had not realized before what sort of life Alma had led, or how cheerfully she had faced hardships that would have made her friend shrink. It was a revelation of appalling things, things that were not tolerable, and yet were endured every day. Alma Crake was what was called an experienced actress in the profession, which meant that at twenty-eight she had played nearly every line of her art that exists. She had been the heroine in comedy and the villainess in tragedy. For one desperate winter, she had nearly killed herself over pantomime work, and before that had second lead in rough drama or melodrama. But her best parts were old women and boys, character parts, scraps of which she repeated over and over again to Flair's unwilling ears. Her work so far had ended in the tour abroad in comic opera, which had laid the foundations of her illness, and she pleaded piteously over and over again for one good night's rest, or sometimes seemed to feel herself obliged to clean her own room 
in an uninhabitable hotel before she could go into it flare could piece in her experiences from what she already knew and her lips set as she followed it all with her fatal gift of fancy not infrequently she was aware the women of the company had arrived at some place dead tired and had had to sit faint and weary on their own luggage until their rooms were apportioned and then might come this necessity of cleaning them before they could even wash or rest themselves there were hideous spells of being carted like cattle in tramp steamers too where the food was unfit to eat even for those who were good sailors and where the one steward could not attend to everybody and so the girls must either wait on themselves or if too ill endure all the horrors of seasickness without the decencies of ordinary service for the life led by a theatrical company on a foreign tour is by no means the brilliant round of fun and travel and attention that some even in the profession still imagine it can be a very grim trial of health and nerve indeed and alma had found it so colonel craik had never roughed it in campaign according to their relative strength as his daughter had to gain that experience to which flare caldicott sat and listened while she wondered less and less that her friend might be dying it seemed enough to have killed any woman outright please aunt fanny said alma suddenly i must go i'm tired of this life it is stifling me and i want to earn my own living she had leapt back another ten years she was once more the penniless orphaned niece in the uncomfortable bourgeois household where she had played cinderella to her elder cousins since the first years of her life that she could remember alma had no recollection of being sent home from india at three years old but she did remember her aunt's environment as it slowly unfolded itself to her young eyes her childhood's experience had been a thing which she never would forget and had made even the drawbacks of stage life appear more bearable by contrast to its sordid loveless monotony any one less gifted with vitality than alma would have been worn down to a dreary hopeless drudge but the instinct of self-preservation had forced her to fight fate and her spirited resistance had resulted in her having her way and coming to london to try the verge of starvation for six months before she got her first opening to walk on at a pound a week how cold that winter had been once during the delirious night she fancied herself going through it again in the bare london room where she could not afford a fire and so had put on her outside things and walked the streets to warm herself colonel craik's daughter with her big asking eyes and anxious face flare listened to that part of the story with white lips sometimes alma chattered of being asked out to supper by passing acquaintances known through a twisted note sent to the stage door there is a regular code from the stage to the stalls for those who care to make acquaintance across the footlights she had never availed herself of it but she spoke of a big man who recurred at intervals all through her delirium a man whose masculine strength and protection seemed to have been good to lean upon though he were nothing more than such a vague support to this waif of an irregular social order 
Flair had an impression of him waiting at the stage door to take Alma home, but strangely enough it did not alarm her, or even make her sad. At all events, she said, in the face of her principles, the big man must have looked after her and, and not let her be tired and hungry. I am quite sure he would do that. I think he would be sorry if he could see her now. The vigil by the bedside became intolerable during that first half-hour. Flair rose and went to the open window, looking down at the noisy living street where the trams rolled by and people bought and sold, even as Magda had looked down on a quieter scene at a crisis in her life. Perhaps Alma would never need to buy or sell again. Flair's eyes, full of blank despair, followed the moving, drifting crowd, while she tried to think if it would not perhaps be a good thing for Alma to die and get out of this life that lay before them all. She felt as if she had reached the end of fear and endurance, and as if there were no going on, and yet she knew that she would go on, still the weary round, still the dread of looking forward for herself and others, for when the real girls can do no more, they have come to an end of things and stop, but news ultra know that they must still go on, whether they can or no. I hope Alma will die, said Flair in her extremity, and then the impossibility of facing her own loss made the selfishness of the wish a red-hot pain in her heart. I couldn't bear it, she said blindly, staring out at the steady flow of life below. Dear God, is it never going to stop, this dreadful thing that we call life, and that becomes most intolerable when we dare to love each other? I will never care for anyone again, said Flair Caldicott, solemnly aloud. I am afraid of the pain. End of chapter 6 part 1